You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. unusual to have two such distinguished authors go short but you can never go too short actually i've discovered uh so i wasn't it's actually I sure i wasn't i thought maybe am i am i i wasn't I sure can, about my I time can, i can go out and get a haunted ballad and read something from that if you want <laughs> yeah. or, or no. kincaid's you know no. I got an book. but it you know no i thought it, it, it wasn't too short it was fine okay. it was, it oh, was a nice I, um let me just open it with a question to both of you guys um i think because uh, even though the the piece you wrote, although it had a little humor in it, when you she looked down at the wasp and saw the expression that he'd had on his face at the barbecue, uh, <laughs> life imitating art, but, or art um, imitating life. <laughs> but what what is it, uh, Michael? You describe yourself, or um, maybe it was somebody else talking about you. But at at one point <laughs> you were you were plugged into the splatterpunk thing or wanted to be or somebody else mm-hmm. what what's that about and how does it how does that work what do you well splatterpunk i know was coined by the author david j scow who is called the father of splatterpunk yeah <laughs> and david um and what splatterpunk is or what it was because it's not even really used that much anymore it, but it, at the time that it was coined that he coined it actually um it was essentially as he says um I think David puts it, how does he say it? It's um, like hor- horror that doesn't flinch. So, you know, maybe it's just excessive gore, but other other writers have been uh, lumped in with him. I mean, Lansdale, Joe Lansdale, right, that was right. called a, a, a splatterpunk leader. Um, I, I think Ed Bryant, I think some other people back in that time. And the reason John that Shirley, I got... John Shirley, probably? Yeah, I think John Shirley, maybe, yeah. And uh, Ed Lee, for sure, yeah, was one of those guys. Oh, Skip Inspector, yeah. Total like splatterpunk leading lights, as they, as I think they were called, and the reason that I got lumped in with 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 splatterpunk, I, I was kind of stunned to see on my um, on some page on I don't know Wikipedia or something that I was being called a splatterpunk writer, and I thought, wow, well, okay, but <laughs> but I think it only happened because David J. Scow, who subsequently became a great friend of mine, wrote the introduction to my short story collection, God Laughs When You Die. And because he wrote the, the, the introduction, suddenly he, we became linked to splatterpunk writers. And I, listen, I was just honored to be mentioned in the same breath with Scow and Lansdale and those guys. But um, that's why, I, so that's why I sort of, you know, I didn't, I didn't call myself that, but I don't even think he calls himself that anymore. It's just right, well, you know, the, you, got the cyberpunk, the you got cyberpunk, you got steampunk, right. you got, people are always trying to uh, um, come up know, with some new genre, and some, it's just sort of... Yeah. Another, it's just, it's sort of, it's just horror. It's all. What about you? Do you get categorized? Um, I mean, you're, you, you cross <laughs> genres with mystery and. I, I, God may, God may laugh when you die, but publishers cry when I write because they want <laughs> product and it's just like, well, where do we put this? Well, <laughs> one of, one of my, my favorites ever was I, I wrote a utopian fantasy called Plain Song, which was led up to, um, was, which is a bit of a cult book. And it was basically 10 days leading up to the birth of the God that replaces Jehovah and Jesus and whatnot, and Christ doesn't like it, and in the end he gets his humanity back, which is what I was trying to do with the book. Somebody had put it in Kidlet, and I'm thinking, <laughs> wow. 
Oh, hell no. <laughs> I really don't want a bunch of fundamentalist mommies chasing me with meat axes. You know, it's just like, ah, sure. Yeah, there you go. Die, die, die. But it's like, okay. Um, yeah, they have a, they have a little, the, the, Part of the problem was that in initially I had I took a I took a hiatus I had I had four books published mainstream houses I mean St Martin's Bantam Fawcett did the paperback and then Pan Macmillan in the UK I had four books published between 1988 and 1993 and then I ran into a buzzsaw in publishing and said Wow I don't like this I don't like these people I don't like where this is going I am the hell out of here and I didn't write anything for the next ten years. Um, in 2003, I sort of went, hmm, and wrote The Weaver and the Factory Maid. And a friend of mine suggested that I ping Ruth Cavan, who had been my editor at St. Martin's. Now, St. Martin's had brought out two of those first four, including Eyes in the Fire and Plain Song. Um, Ruth Cavan is known as the Dwayne of American Mystery Publishing. She's a mystery editor. It's what she does. Um, Plain Song is a utopian fantasy about leading up to the birth of a new god, and Eyes in the Fire is a horror novel in which two women live in the same, it was my first book, live in the same spot 2,000 years apart, and they're both very, um, what is the word I'm looking for? Sensitive? Uh, no, not, they're not sensitive. Basi basically, the, the tribal girl um, is really powerful and really strong, but she is prohibited by the society in which, of which she is apart from practicing that on penalty of death, essentially. The modern woman is, is very psychic and very aware, but she's so glutted with creature comforts that why would she bother? And basically, you get a little hole in time and the two of them start moving toward each other until you have a single entity and then everything goes boom and lots of people die because um, that's what happens when you punch a hole in time or so I'm told nice. um, but neither of these things is what you would call a mystery novel and she liked my voice she really a lot so she bought them and she published them on Thomas Dunn which is a mystery imprint and ever since it's been you write um no, um, you write, um, what do you write? And so, and so I write novels, <laughs> you know. Um, the, that, this one, and then put out the light, the nearest I can get to classifying that is magic realism, really. Yeah. And that one is, right. this, and, and still life is essentially a, uh, as one agent called it, a supernatural police procedural. Mm. I like that. Well, okay. That's good. So what do you call Revenant? Or do you need, had, uh, um, I call it, I do call it, I think of it as a horror comedy. I mean, it's primarily a horror, a, a horror novel. Um, there are comedic elements in it. I mean, the chapter that I read to you guys was, um, I, I chose it because it's, it, it moves pretty well and it's a pretty snappy dialogue. They always talk about snappy dialogue, oh God. But um, I mean, there's some parts of it that are a lot darker and some parts of it that aren't. And there's, it's a, but in, in terms of, I mean, I guess it's and maybe what Deb was referring to earlier that I'm discovering it happens in all realms, certainly in entertainment, and it happens in publishing is this need to pigeonhole, you know, oh, you're a horror writer, or you're a mystery writer, or you're a, you know, whatever it is. And and I was told, I was actually told by an editor once, you know, it's it's not good to cross genres. We just, it's like cross genres. I, it's just a story, and so I, I don't think writers really think about genre when they write. I just think we think about story. Story. And then everyone tries to figure out where to where to put it, and so. But I, 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 for this, this is definitely. And I, and I, and I love horror. I love horror stories. I'm a horror. I think of, I think of myself as a writer. But I, yeah, if I, if I'm, if I'm, if I cling to one genre, it's probably horror. But I love science fiction as well and well, comedy. There, there does seem to be a, a a real strain of humor in horror that is sort yeah. of 
I can't think of, except for Lovecraft, a horror writer that didn't have a sense of humor. Yeah, uh, yeah. Certainly, Stephen King has a very sort of dry sense sure. of Sure. I mean, the thing that I love about King and what you what I used to hate about King is that he, he would make you laugh at the worst possible time. Right. Of <laughs> you don't want to laugh. You, you're pissed off. You're horrified. Whatever it is, it's happening. And then suddenly he makes you laugh with some piece of... Of, of you know brilliant prose or something that just just placed in there at the, at the right moment and but but I do and as I was saying to someone earlier tonight I I, I mean in movies for instance I I I love I love monsters I'm a monster guy I don't like you know crazy guys with axes even though there's one in this <laughs> but you know I mean in terms of the movies I don't like well, you know chopping critic. up teen uh, he's a literary <laughs> critic and and that actually refers to a running gag I do have a, a you know, no pun intended there is a running gag in the book that part of the, the conspiracy to kill Obadiah Grudge is being played out by by all of the city's literary critics <laughs> who've all been taken over by this sort of invading spirit from this alien world of monsters and part of the part of the the team of monsters that are trying to kill Obadiah happen to be happen to take the form of these literary critics who've also tried to kill him critically as well cause and somewhere Pauline Kael is sitting in a tower going <laughs> yes my pretty yes. yeah exactly <laughs> But all of it, I mean, I, humor, I mean, having spent so much of my career as an actor in, in, in comedy, I, I mean, it's, someone mentioned Shaun of the Dead earlier, and I, there's something about that confluence of laughter, of a, of a laugh and a scream, you know. And uh, my friend, again, my friend David Scow actually says it really well. He says there's, that the tension release response in a laugh is very similar to that of a scream in that the tension builds up, the stimulus is there, the tension builds up, the, and, and then you laugh. And same with the same thing happens with a scream or with a scary moment in a book or a movie. You know, you, you, the suspense builds, the suspense builds, and the killer jumps out of the closet and hacks somebody to death, and there's a scream. And so, and there's something about that 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 really resonates for me. Uh, my first novel, which was never published because it was 1,300 pages long <laughs> and a mess, um, boat anchor had uh, yeah, it was a boat anchor. <laughs> had some had some elements of humor, but not a lot. But so I don't know. It's it's a horror comedy in answer to your question. Yeah, all right. Yeah, I write, you know, I, d I don't write horror so much as I write ghost stories when mm -hmm. I'm doing those. I, I'm, I'm, whereas I totally appreciate Lansdell, I appreciate Shirley. I, I am, I am a Shirley, I am Shirley Jackson's personal bitch. Mm. Okay, I adore Shirley Jackson, I think. <laughs> this is, this is the thing with, I, I love Peter Straub. Mm -hmm. He kills me, just, it just, Peter is an amazing writer. Yeah. Um, no, Peter's not real funny. He can be. He can be. Yeah. Oh, he can be. But you betcha. Mr. Strap is a super Yeah, he's yeah, very, very subtle. He's right behind you. The only one of his the only one of his that that um that I that I did not could not find a single moment of humor in that was absolutely relentless was Floating Dragon. With Floating Dragon and, and the thing is I kind of I kind of like relentless. But mine don't it's if if there's a, if there's gore then I'm not going to go relentless. You need you need the break. The break, right? But but for I mean cer certainly in, I mean in, in Maddie Groves the the ghost in that is is a horror. He's an he, I mean he is literally he's an, he's an incubus essentially, mm. um, and he is he is stuck in his own moment in time where he was a a vicious murdering pig and he's just the idea is that essentially you see these leathery winged demons and. What if what they really are are just people who are so miserable <laughs> and screwed up, and there's no there's no redemption, there's nowhere to go but down. And mm. what you're seeing is like you know, their personalities. Mm. Um, but it's it's a case of you look again. You're looking. 
the, the two books, like like the Stephen King did, The Shining was a big, gooey, very satisfying 85 tubs of popcorn. <laughs> but you know what? It was an homage to The Haunting of Hill House, and, mm -hmm. and Stephen says so. Sure. In fact, he even, the, 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 the opening paragraph of, of, uh, of The Haunting of Hill House is something that a lot of horror writers can recite. Yeah, I, and I, 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 I did it, Rain will remember, I did it with Peter Straub, but uh, we just, both of us spontaneously broke into it and neither of us missed a word. At Borderlands, um, during HWA a couple of years ago. Yeah, Hill House, not saying stood. Yeah, yeah, it's like, you know, indoors, doors, were, yeah. Is it, no, no sane organism can continue to exist under conditions of absolute reality, even larks and katydids are supposed by some to dream. Hill House, not sane. And it goes from there, wow. you know. You know, uh, you know, had, had stood for 80 years, mm. it might stand for 80 more. Inside, walls met floors, yeah, walls met floors and doors were sensibly shut. Silence lay steadily against the wood and stone of Hill House, and whatever walked there, walked alone. Mm. And everybody was really kind of like backed away from it. <laughs> but then you get to, oh, there's no humor in there at all. You know, just what you're walking into, it's like, oh, sh this, yeah. is gonna, this is gonna freak me out. You get to a point in the book one of the scariest moments in that book where the two women, Eleanor and Theodora, something, it is ice cold and something is going up and down the hall and it's literally trying to smash the door in to get to them. And waves of cold are coming from whatever and she just is such a terrifying writer. Mm -hmm. But you get to the end of that bit and the, the men who have been outside chasing some unidentified thing that led them on a chase outside the house heard and saw nothing. Whatever it was was to isolate. You know, mm. this is the purpose of whatever it is that is moving around the halls of Hill House at night is to isolate them. And what is scarier than complete isolation? Right. Um, but you get to, did anything happen while we were outside? And the two women look at each other and start laughing. And, and, and Theo, who was the vivid one, she said, oh, nothing much. Something banged on the door with a cannonball and tried to get in and eat us. And then it started laughing its head off when we wouldn't let it in, but nothing really out of the way, <laughs> you know? And the thing is, is that the haunting of Hill House the Shining, which is an homage to it. I mean, the Overlook Hotel is, is King's version of Hill House, and, and it's 700 pages. Mm -hmm. Shirley Jackson did it in 167 pages, wow. and I can still quote the opening. Wow. <laughs> and so can Peter Straub, who is no slouch when you're talking about horror writers. Wow. So it's, it's, yeah, I mean, she knew when to release it. She packed so much into that little tiny, you know, mm -hmm. that it was almost like you were in a black hole of horror, mm -hmm. and she knew when to make you laugh. So I'm I'm with you. You know you've got to you know you at some point it it breaks. It's like you're going bang with the, with the with the the absorption funny bone, and you either have to laugh or you've got to freak. <laughs> One of the two. Yeah. Laughing's better. Laughing's better. Yeah. Well, anybody can jump in here anytime. Anybody, Rena. Louder. Yeah. You want to go first, or should I? Yeah. You want me to take that one first, Michael? Or? Yeah. Go ahead. Um, I wrote my first novel at 15. It sucked. It was <laughs> so pretentious and so bad. It was about a bunch of hippies in an Italian commune, and I wrote half of it in Italian. Oh. It doesn't get more pretentious than that. Does That's not great. get more pretentious. <laughs> so very bad. But you know what? You know what? 
I had people, I had characters that I had literally had channeled out and I put them on a road and I sent them down that road and there was something at the end of that road and I wanted to see where they went and I took them there mm. and I finished the damned book. That is not a small thing. The number of people who go, oh yeah, I, I, could, I could write a great novel if I could just take a year off. Oh please, mm. a writer writes. You get your butt in the chair <laughs> and there's a road and there are characters and there is a place they want to go to and you go down the road with them and you take the reader with you. And if you do your job properly, the readers want to go there. It's not a question of wanting to write or deciding to write. I had a story. I wanted to tell it. I told it. A writer writes. Yeah. You know? I, uh, don't, I don't know if I don't know how much clearer I could be than that. It's just yeah. you write because you have to. You have to. But you already had a job. <laughs> I, yeah. So what? <laughs> I did. I um. You do both. You know? I mean, for me, it was. Um, I, rem I I laugh now when I I think about how much time I spend writing. When I'm when I was in college, I was a theater major and I was doing plays and Where was that? and some at oh, Western Illinois University. That's DeKalb, right? No, Macomb, Illinois, oh. about at four hours uh, west right. of Chicago. And um, I uh, I took a creative writing course because I was a I the one thing the one link that I can consciously make between my writing my acting career and my life as a writer is that I was always a voracious reader uh, my friend Ed who I'm staying with here in San Francisco laughed at me because he remembered a trip that I we took together where I had I don't know six books in my backpack and by the end of the trip what was it a week you said you just said this today at the end of the trip you know I was going <laughs> right <laughs> And I've always, I've just always been that. And, 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 I, and I've said later, I said in an interview somewhere that I think that in a very strange way that acting for me might have been what I've called a creative misfire. That maybe I, I always, I, I don't know, that, that maybe the stimulus or whatever wasn't there for me to become a writer at the time, but there was this urge to be a part of story. I loved, um, I remember watching um, this old, PBS program in Chicago, great performances that, uh, and and watching, for right right when I was around 15, 16 years old, I began to watch all of the Shakespeare that I could get. For some reason, I had no idea about acting. Uh, acting for me was was something. I grew up a working class kid in the South Side of Chicago, so actors were movie stars and TV stars, and that's what they were. It didn't strike me as something as a possibility as a career or anything. Same with writing. Writing was even for writing. It's esoteric, and you know, I'm I was supposed to grow up and work at the post office. That's what my mother hoped. You know, for me, I mean, just in terms of working class, just regular folks kind of thing. Um, but I land, I I stumbled into acting in a very weird way, like a lot of actors do, to meet chicks or to meet someone you know that would pay attention to me. <laughs> And I could, was sort of goofy and funny and could do voices. And so like, they stuck me into a high school play and I you know, sort of found a world of outcasts that I liked and that liked me. But writing didn't become an option for me until I had done China Beach. We were talking about that, Rena, and, and I had done that show and I was living in LA and, and I, 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 I broke my Achilles tendon one day in a, in a really freakish household accident, which I won't describe. But, um, uh, and I couldn't work. And I couldn't work for 12 weeks. And Don Cheadle, who's a good friend of ours, um, stopped by, to, as a lot of my friends did, Ed did, and sort of, sort of just 
support me and say, hey, you'll be okay. And, and Cheadle actually said to me at the time, and I've said this in interviews, that, you know, he said, well, I, he saw me, I was sitting there on my couch, you know, bearded and fat and depressed. For the first time in my career, I was, you know, people were actually offering me acting jobs, uh, you know, because I had been on the show China Beach and other things, and, and I couldn't take them because I couldn't walk. It was, it was the, it was, it was just filled just a moment of irony. It's like, how can this be? I've busted my ass to get to this point, and now I can't do it because I can't walk. And what am I supposed to learn from this? And, and it, right in that moment, Cheadle comes up, comes by, and he said, um, he said, what are you doing? What are you doing around here? And I said, nothing. What do you mean, what am I doing? I can't do anything. I'm sitting, I'm sitting on my ass. I can't work. I'm just sitting here dying inside, something dramatic and ridiculous <laughs> like that. And he said, well, what else do you want to do? And I said, what do you mean, what else do I want to do? I'm an actor. That's what I do. I don't do anything else. And he said, well, have you ever wanted to, you know, make a, uh, what did he say? He said, you ever, have you ever wanted to sculpt or play music or... And I said, I, I said, well, what are you saying? What are you talking about? He said, well, creative people have to create. You have to do something. If you don't exercise that muscle, you'll go crazy. Or you'll, you know, climb to a rooftop and shoot small animals or something like that. And he said, what have you, what else have you, what else do you want to do besides be an actor? And I sat there, he left, and I sat there just sort of begrudgingly thinking about it. Well... I always thought about maybe you write. And it's so cliche for an actor to say, I want to write a screenplay. But I, it was one thing I'd thought about, like maybe writing a screenplay. And so I sat there for 12 weeks with nothing else to do. That was when I got my very first laptop. This is 13 years ago now. And I wrote a screenplay. And it was terrible. It was awful. And yet, I loved it. And, and I loved it because I realized, in answer to your question, this is a very long way around your question, Rena, but what I realized at the end of it was, holy smokes. And I, I got back up on my feet, and I was able to take other acting jobs, and things came along. But even in the really sort of successful shows, that I was at Spin City and Arliss, and you realize that it's all committee. It's all done by committee. You know, a TV show, a movie, it's all made. There's a director, there's a producer. Before you even get to the director and the producer, you have to have an agent, a manager. There's all these reasons why you don't get to do what you love to do. And when you do get a chance to do it, oh, it's really great, and you love it, and it's fantastic. And then you don't get to do it for a year because you have to wait for the director and the producer and all this stuff. I can sit down at my, at my laptop or at my desktop and write any time I want to. And Stephen King, to mention, you talked about Stephen King earlier, Deb. I read something in one of his books, it might have been on writing, where he said, you know, I, you, that he realized that he was the only God these characters had, and that they literally are waiting for him to create their world. And that appealed to the megalomaniac in me, <laughs> because I'm sitting there my entire career waiting for people to tell me when I can be creative. Right. Guess what? As a writer, I don't have to do that. Oh, my God. And so, and like my friends always say, God, your writing is so angry. I go, yeah, because 13 years of waiting for, you know. But, and I think that's when suddenly writing became, in a very weird way, m more gratifying for me than acting because I can, I can do it any time. I can do it every day. Uh, it's a greater or lesser success, obviously, but I can write stories and screenplays. And so it's, it's, um, it's, it's, it's been a, a great journey that way, yeah. Yeah. Well, you know what? If I had it, yeah. 
Well, there is that. You want to be yourself, well, no matter it, what. It does say "mean little stories" on the front. Yeah, you mean. The, the subtitle is "mean, mean little, little stories, stories from the wrong side of the tracks." There you yeah. go. You know what you're getting. There so there is a great. For me, there's a lot of anger, but not ang. It's fine. I don't know what. I, I, every every artist is angry. I mean, if you don't have some kind of passion, what else sustains you? you? But. I, that title came about because I guess I just wanted to bother people and I wanted to irritate people. And I'm an, I'm an agnostic slash atheist, whatever, but oh my God, I took so much heat for that title from my, my mother. I can't read this. Go figure. Yeah. I, I love that title. But I guess that was the point. I wanted to provoke people and someone said, you should have a nice provocative title. Well, boy, uh, Doesn't did I? Doesn't get more provocative than that. Yeah. What do you mean? I think God <laughs> celebrates when we do. Oh, for Christ. Oh. Oh, Michael, by the way, yes. anytime you want to send Don Cheadle over to my house, oh. I will make you cookies. Okay. I adore Don Cheadle. His oh, wife and daughters love. may have something to say about it. Nope, tell, think I'll feed them. Bring All them right. over. All right. I just think he's great. Yeah, he That's is like great. We, we redid some old Stanley Brothers gospel songs one time. We did one called God Sent an Angel Down to Kill Her. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I love that stuff. And if you can't joke about it, what's the point? What's the point? Exactly. Uh, a friend of mine actually stopped me. Yes, right. Put a holy war out on me. A friend of mine actually said to me, I can't buy your book because I'm religious. I go, what do you say? What do you mean? Well, the title is it's offensive to me. Okay, don't buy it. Yeah, you're satanic. Not my, you're not my target audience, yeah, right. trust me. Yeah. <laughs> not my target audience. Speaking of humor, the, uh, I, was, I was just noticing that the Obadiah, the name of Obadiah Grudge, and a little bit of the language and some of the intonation that reminded me a little bit of Lord Buckley. You're probably too young hmm. to remember Lord Buckley. I've heard of him. I mean, he did a thing called God's Own Drunk hmm. uh, about a guy called Obadiah. Oh, really? Wow. Yeah. yeah. Yep. That was, that was back in the day. Yeah. In the day, in the day. In the day, in the day. There's something about the idea of a young, sort of relatively hip guy. I mean, he's actually, he's really a curmudgeon. He's, you know, he's... He's a famous writer, but he has a horrible relationship with his mother, and yet she's pretty much the only person who will talk to him on a regular basis. And, and something about this idea of a, of a young man with a name with the name Obadiah Grudge, just sort of this, you know, curmudgeonly antisocial alcoholic who has to sort of join the human race because of this, the threat to the world. But um, yeah, it just uh, it's just sort of I love the idea of sticking young guys with crotchety old guys' names. <laughs> You know. Plus, I love prospectors. I love those. Uh, who's that? Char who's the character actor that used to do the prospector in all the old? Oh, movies? Uh, Walter, R Walter. Walter. Um, Walter Brennan. Brennan. Yeah. Brennan. Yeah, Brennan. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> because you say Walter Brennan to me, I, s I see um, to have and have not. Mm -hmm. The first thing I think of is just put your lips together and blow. Yeah. Right. Okay. That's right. <laughs> awesome movie. Right. Slappy white. Oh yeah. Yeah. Well, you yeah. sort of repeating what you said about. I mean, you were saying a writer has to write. And that's what we do. That's what you do. That's what we do. That's what yeah. we do. And so, you know, so we were talking, somebody earlier was saying, you know, where do your ideas come from? And you said it yourself. They come from your butt. You sit on your butt for I, four or five hours a day. I, I don't, that's it. I don't, yeah, well, I don't, I don't, I get, I keep, I just, I have a, a, I'll have a piece coming out. Green Man Review, for which I am a contributing editor, is doing an entire issue devoted to Neil Gaiman, um, amateur. Wow. And Rain read this piece, as did Neil. Um, and I have the, the center piece on Neil, uh, the center article on Neil for mm -hmm. this thing, and it's just a very loving retrospective look at a friend here, and I got him to, you know, he approved it. Um, but I started out that article with what I'm going to say now, which is 
you know, tell me about your process. It's like <laughs> the single most irritating, irrelevant, dumbass freaking question. I have no. I absolutely am yeah. a girl. I'm aware. Believe me. Why is it a but stupid even question? It's a stupid question because, first of all, I have no process. I'm completely organic. How annoying is that? <laughs> the second, the second thing is, is that even if I sit there and I do an Anne Lamott <laughs> bird by bird, and or, or a Stephen King on writing, and I take you through this in process, mm -hmm. my process, whatever it might be, cannot be your spur. Right. If you are a writer, you are on your own road. Oh These boy. are your characters. These are your stories. This is your light at the end of that road, and that is where you are going. You know. That is how that works. So yeah. it's like basically, I said, well, can you sit down with Neil and ask him about his process? And I said, no, thanks. I'd rather sit down and have barbecue in the ninth level of hell. <laughs> it's not going to happen. <laughs> you know, um, just not. And in point, to be fair, <laughs> to be fair, Neil would laugh me out the door if I tried. So, but, it's, it's but I think people think that there is... There's, there's a, some magical yeah, little Rosetta Stone right, that thing. That will allow them to... Yeah. If, there's, if, there's one, if there's one thing that... I have a couple of friends who've done the the. You know, I know you guys. I'm sure you guys have heard of the whole. What's that? Namo, Namo, Rightmo thing. Oh, na Nanorimo. Na right, but no. the only. But what's great about what is it? Nanorimo. Okay, Nanorimo. Where write you write a novel, a novel in, in 30 days. In November. But what's yes. great about that and why it seems to work and why my friend Andy, who who never wrote and always talked about it, then has now written two novels based on the, is. But it's essentially what you said. It just tells you to sit your butt in the chair and write chair. every day. That's it. That's it. Oh, There's I have no because because I because I wrote the first Kincaid in 29 days. Mm -hmm. I mean, Rock and Roll Never Forgets was written in 29 days. Wow. I am officially excused forever from doing NaNoWriMo. Right, right. <laughs> I no longer have anything to prove on that level. Yeah. I wrote a novel in a month. Thank you. Yeah, but no wait. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm gonna defend the question. Okay. Sure. That's they're the other one. Trying to find out how they're going to get ideas from you, they respect your ideas. Oh, totally. But I don't right. get ideas. Right. Thank you. Yeah. I don't get ideas, Amaker. I don't. Yeah. Okay. Well, maybe the. Oh, right. Your process is that you have a certain goal of right. words that you write in a day, and you do it. You sit your butt down, and you do it. Mm -hmm. Some people, like Neil, will tell you there is a process. Mm. He, he has one, sure. And Robin Hitchcock will tell you something about the, the light bulb melting, yep. and then <laughs> the burning down of fear, and they'll go, there, no, I've never done all those things. Yeah. And I thought he was lying about it. Of course. <laughs> oh, please. Yeah. Amaker, I didn't say nobody has a process. I said I have no process. No, but Asking you said it, me is pointless. But you said it was a stupid question. I, and I for me, no, it's her. an infuriating yeah. question for me personally. It's uh, not going to be one for Neil, though. It doesn't mean we Well, yeah, but you'll get the same answer from me. I know. Well, there, absolutely, you've done that we already. We had another. <laughs> you had you your go. hand raised. No, no. Oh. <laughs> Well, I just wanted he wanted to, to know what your process is. I just wanted to say something about the same thing because, yeah, it might uh, maybe that's not a question you 
would like to answer, but I'm thinking of like the Par uh, the Paris Review interviews or, or any interview that you talk about a writer. People that are interested in that and sure. uh, like to, it's not because they want to be what you are, it's because they're interested in what you are. But it's also uh, different because there are writers that I've, because I'm interested in how other people write yeah. and, and, and I read their books and and there are people who will tell you, oh, totally. this is, you know, E equals MC square, and I have to sit in my office, but I can only sit there after 10, and if I get, you know, and, if, and I can only write for 20 minutes in the morning, because then I have to try. Ernest and I think Hemingway. it's so different for everybody, right? Well, it's Hemingway's like a, thing. It's like a yeah. ball player sure. uh, shooting free throws. You get up and you go like this, and you yeah, go like yeah. this, and then, mm. and then you hit the free throw, you yeah. know? And I remember, I remember reading a thing Hemingway said once where he said, I always quit when it's going well. Yeah. Yep. And Al Franken says the same and thing. And I think, uh, you know, maybe he just convinced <laughs> himself yeah. of that. You know, but it sort of helped him out. And, uh, and yeah. you know, Trump read, would write for so many minutes a day. Yeah. Yep. Right. Uh, Fred Pohl writes a thousand words a day. But know, is that I don't, I don't that's not that's not how I define process though. Mm. I mean that that is that is that is physical habit. Well, it's just mm -hmm. yeah, it's like magic. process is a creative thing. This you're talking about the disciplinary tools that get you in the chair well, to process. Right. Yeah. Sit there, yeah. Rain has a finger up. Yes, dear. I, I think you said another good point that Greg was trying to make, um, and, and Amber Mine? was saying. Well, no, I was just saying <laughs> I well, thank you. In a cafe, just because that cafe kind of like had these checkerboard tiles. Oh yeah, it's that yeah. esoteric, yeah. Absolutely. And the cafe closed. <laughs> 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 End die, of novel. Die, die. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's my process. Right. That's it. But see, that's the that's so what, <laughs> but that's what that's why it's it's. Yeah. Yes. Next next terrain. Yeah. We have, we have a yeah. hand up. Mm -hmm. Every single piece has a different process. And yeah. there's no way that I could explain all of that. Yeah. yeah it's like, sure. how, yeah, there's I mean, the 1300 page novel that I wrote, my first real sort of diving into writing seriously, um, was inspired because I saw Independence Day, the Will Smith, Jeff Goldblum movie. And they hit on a, on a theme that I'm a huge, I'm a, uh, listen, I'm going to, friggin' publish this novel one day because I love alien invasion stories. I've got, I love them, I love end of the world stories, alien, all of it. So I'm sitting there watching Independence Day, very excited, oh happy, it's great, they're blowing up Washington, they're destroying New York, yes, I'm so happy. And then Will Smith comes in and he turns it into like a weird comedy and then he's knocking out aliens in body armor. And I didn't hear no fat lady sing around. And, yeah, and I just, and I suddenly, I got so pissed. Because it's like the first half of that movie was great, dead on. And then Will Smith comes on, which also, by the way, I'm actually working on a book proposal right now about, about uh, minority images in, in the horror movies and TV shows, whatever. It also sort of always freaks me out that, you know, you know, the black guy comes in, and then the comedy starts. <laughs> yeah, it's like really. <laughs> and Will Smith comes in, welcome to Earth, motherfucker. It's like, you got to be frigging kidding me. They've blown up New York. They've blown up D.C. Come on. You guys were doing a really good job up to that point, and then it became something else. And, and that 
feeling that literally to this day, con 15 years later, however long it is, contorts my body with rage right now, and it sends me right to my to my computer. Michael, and, how do you feel about the movie? And how do you explain Elliot? that to somebody? How huh? do you feel about the uh, yeah, 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 I guess, whatever. Yeah, 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 no, he is. Uh, I don't know, yeah, it's all right. How do you, wait, how do you? Wait, 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 wait. Right. Nick has here. Oh, uh, Nick has a question. Right. No, no, Nick. Yeah. He should know. At, sure. Uh-oh. And Graceland, I may, I'm going to say this uh, right off the bat. Graceland is the musician's book of the Kincaids, and it's it's a it's an, an intimate wrenching. It's mm. really about a session player, and you know he is. It's it's uh, I had one friend of mine, um, Barb Ferrer, who is a um, she's a young adult novelist, Latina. She has two novels out, and one of them one a Rita for young adult Latina lit. And she's also a trained musician. I mean, she's a professional musician. It's what she did for a while there. She's a pianist. And she was uh, reading some of this stuff, and she emailed me. And she goes, he must be really obscure. I can't, I can't find him anywhere. I've go and I said, well, it's because he doesn't exist. <laughs> and she, she said, uh, are you sure? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, <laughs> I wrote the damn book. But, you know, it's... Well, now, that's processed in a way. Sometimes... Uh, there, there's a second half to that. Okay. Oh, shit. Seriously, there's a full overlap. When you were that deep in the universe that a story was set in, finding ideas to expand it, stories to tell within it, it's very simple. Because the characters tell you, and it's a progression, it's a chronology. This is a chronicle, and each book follows the last one. And literally, um, while, uh, while My Guitar Gently Weeps, which comes out this September, uh, picks up literally a week after Rock and Roll Never Forgets ends. So it's a complete, yeah. you know, you just you're going down the road with those characters. They were okay with the specifically with the Kincaids. Yeah. Okay, the Kincaids are literally the books of my heart. These are the books that I was not going to write ever. This, this is the first time I've ever put myself in a novel. The voice of J.P. Kincaid was the voice of somebody that I loved and lost, and this was my way of getting it back and seeing what I was about and seeing how I might have been seen. 
and the local rock and roll community has, has made it essentially painless for me to come back in, which makes me very happy, and I love them very much. But, um, so, which is why the first one, which is 92,000 words, required essentially no edits before publication, and it took me 29 days. Um, I took three days off and started while my guitar gently weeps, and that one was the same deal, 33 days. Um, these, I no, I'm not usually quite that fast. I bled these. Yeah. Um, and as they, by the time I was halfway through writing Rock and Roll Never Forgets, J.P. Kincaid, John Peter Kincaid, whereas he still had the voice that I was trying to recapture, he was his own character completely. And he was telling me where he wanted to go and what he wanted me to do and what that was about, you know. And I got myself back in writing them. Yeah. And that I've now written, there are six of them complete, and I've just started seven. You know, so it's just like bang, bang, bang. And in the middle of all that, there were three haunted ballads and uh, Dark in the Park and a couple of other things. So it's, it's yeah, I'm excused from NaNoWriMo. <laughs> been there, done that. <laughs> been there, been there, been there, done that. I'm, I have a permanent note from the teacher. I don't have to do <laughs> novel writing in November. I've been there, done that. I am excused. Um, you, you can't. You write. You're a writer. You write. It's what. It's what you do. Um, I'm also a musician. I can't play music the way I used to because I have multiple sclerosis and it's messing with my hands. Um, most of the damage that before they got it under control to my left hand, which, which is a guitar fretting hand, so most of what I can still do with this hand is, is by sense memory. Mm. Um, I wouldn't even try picking up one of My husband is a shit-hot bass player. I would not. We have 13 guitars and basses sitting on stands around, uh, around the office, and that's not all of the ones we own. I mean, I've got no, I can't find the stand for the Chapman stick, and it won't sit on a guitar stand without going thunk and hitting the ground, so that one's still in its case. But... Um, <laughs> It's, yeah, I'm, I'm just sort of, the fact that we recorded a lot of what we did. We did a three-and-a-half-minute movie trailer for Rock and Roll Never Forgets, which is up on YouTube, which went mildly viral on us. It's had 3,600 hits, mm -hmm. discrete hits. Um, and we're doing, uh, we're doing another one for While My Guitar Gently Weeps. And instead of your usual book trailers, which were like flashing still images with text across the bottom, I said, screw that. This book is about rock and roll. I mean, this this, mm. this this is about this is about groins and hips moving and, and loud music and smoke in that moment when the guitar player looks your way. Okay, yeah. this is this needs to be kinetic. So we put together we put together a three and a half minute movie trailer and we played all the music on it from the band that we used to have. Um, it's got film, it's got text, it's got actual. You know, it, it's a movie. We figured, as as Nick said, if we were going to be releasing a movie of the book, this would be the movie trailer. The trailer. And Media Bistro. Galley Cat picked it up and put it on their front page, you know, That's and cool. said, this is how you do it. Cool. Wow. Awesome. So, you know, it's that universe, as Nick says, is, is, has a lot of overlap. Um, we, I, I closed out Litquake this past year with the music writers um, at uh, Amnesia the, on, the, on, the, on Lit Crawl, the last night of, of it, it's our big, you, you should come out here for that at some point. Yeah. You know, you know about Litquake? I've heard of it, yeah. Seven days, wow. top to bottom. And I would have, if, if Neil had not been on, on the road, because he really wanted to read J.P. Kincaid with me, and that would have been so brilliant. Yeah, we, we would have added yeah. a couple of zeros to the number of books sold. <laughs> yes, it's Neil Gaiman reading the part of J.P. Kincaid. You know, because, well, he, he, he rock star reading rock star, so that works. But, uh, you know, I, we had a, a read with Blog Dahlia, was one of the, one of the, the, the writers for that one. 
Um, and reading it Amnesia, I was giving some of the backup and, and said, well, we, you know, for the second book, which is what I read from, While My Guitar Gently Weaves, I said, I knew the entire story. Going in, I knew what it was about. I knew who these, you know, what was going on. I wanted to write about the local sessions players and, and what it was like. You know, and, and the only thing I didn't have was the victim and who should I kill. Mm. And I, t I told this story to a packed house. We had about 150 people. It was spilling out into the street at Amnesia, and everybody hit the floor laughing. These were a bunch of San Franciscans, so they knew what I was talking about. Nick said, let's kill Dino Valenti. Now, for those of you who remember Quicksilver <laughs> Messenger Service, um, after Dino was a complete pig, um, after I stopped laughing, which I, I did for longer than was strictly polite or necessary, um, I pointed out that Dino was already dead, and Nick said, kill him again. <laughs> Couldn't happen to a nicer guy. Um, so I did. And of course the thing is is that half the local music community, some of whom were actually members of Quicksilver Messenger Service back in the day, are reading this um, and are laughing their asses off. So <laughs> it just sort of processes and you get the spillover you know, into the real world. I've got an author-author essay in the current uh, issue of Mystery Reader. And um, it's the San Francisco issue, so there's like, you know, all about writing here. And mine was called Sanctuary by the Bay, and it was just basically the city itself lends itself, I think, to a, to a lot of dark atmospheric writing. You know, we, do, we, we are that way. So you get a lot of spillover in between series that way, too, and in between yeah. books. Well, well, here's a process. Uh, one of the things when I'm reading the, uh, or reading about writers, I'm always, one of the things I always want to know about writers is, are you in more? Do you write? I want to know three things. What kind of car you have, where you live, and uh, do you write in the morning or the evening? So mm. I'm just a process question for you because you've got a day job. I don't know if you're. Uh, there's a lot of them sit around in movies, right? Yeah. And in TV, you work a lot yeah. harder. It was, so how do you keep a steady schedule? Um, do you? I I, I try. I also have four four children, and uh, <laughs> so that's hard. But. Um, I get, because I live in New York, but I work so much in L.A., I get a lot of writing done on planes. I get a lot of writing done when I'm in L.A. because my children are in New York. Um, but when I'm in New York, I still have to figure out ways and times to write. And so, and it's interesting how if, you, if you're open to things, things will sort of come to you. I mean, when my, when my four-year-old son started pre-K at the beginning of this year, suddenly two hours in the morning opened up because he's only on half days. So two hours, and it's like, what? Two hours? I'm home, and I get oh my god! Now in between whatever else, my whatever honeydew stuff my wife has for me, I got those two hours. But some what I I used to get a lot of writing done late at night, but then I had four children, and uh, they get up consistently. At, they they insist on getting up every morning. I don't know why. And so uh, my night bird activities just severely dry. I can't I can't stay up anymore the way I used to. I hate to say that in public, but. But um, in terms of, I mean, I, I, I sort of take it, I, I, my philosophy became, you know, I take it where I can get it. So I do a lot of writing on planes. Like here, this is great because when I'm in L.A., if I, you know, I, 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 I take advantage of every sort of free moment I can to try to get some writing done that way. But it's not a regular, you don't have that. No, it's not a regular, I don't, I don't God, I don't have a regular life. Yeah, no, I don't have, I mean, there's, um. I don't. I really don't have a regular writing schedule. I just try to write as much as I possibly can, whenever in in whatever free moments I have. You know. Do you have a regular schedule? Like. Um. No. Um. No. I don't yeah. do that. I would kill. I, I mean, I hear writers say, "Oh, you know, you oh know, no. they from get up from nine and write from nine to three. No, I go, my holy basic, smokes! I love that. My basic thing is, is that before the multiple sclerosis, I am by nature 
an early morning person. I, I like it when it's very still and very quiet, and there is still fog on the roses, and the phone isn't ringing. Right. You know, you have you have four kids. We have thirteen cats. <laughs> He's a night owl. He likes to sleep, um, which means that I get all the morning chores. So I feed the cats, and by the time I'm done with that and doing cat boxes and having two cups of coffee and sit down and do my email, it's been an hour. Yeah. But um, because of the meds that you have to take for the multiple sclerosis at night, um, it has really completely skewed my own internal it's not an oh I'm writing this time of day it's a it's an internal clock thing yeah. physically mm -hmm. because of the disease um, and so the, re the result is is that I mean I'm still I'm still an early morning person mm. but whereas I used to be okay I'm just gonna sit here and write until somebody tells me to stop mm -hmm. you know or the phone rings or what the hell ever these days it's basically um, we have we have a marriage saving pair of he likes television and I do not he ha we have a, a marriage saving pair of wireless headphones so he can watch television, because mm. I, I write with music on. I'm writing about rock and roll these days. Yeah. I have my iTunes. Thank you very much. And I, I want to listen to music. So I'm in the front of the house at the computer in, in the office, looking out at the garden, writing. He's got the headphones on, or he's at his computer, and he's doing his thing. And, you know, it's, it's, whenever, it, it, it's whenever, whenever the story wants out. I sit down and write. Yeah. Everybody writes on a computer now, right? Yeah. yeah, I certainly do. Oh, do you want to know what cars we drove? Yeah. We drive. Yeah. I have a, um, we only have one car actually right now. We drive a big, uh, car. You are in New York. can you believe it? Yeah. More, more you're supposed yeah, to. Yeah, we don't need any more, but um, we have a Suburban, which is horrible to say in this, but four, four kids, kids, dog, mother-in-law. Yeah. 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 Um, it's got 200,000 miles on it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, and then what was the other question? So where, writing? You live, where you live in, in New York. I, forgot, I was reading, uh, when you were reading those sections of the story, I was thinking, where's this going on? And then a guy runs out the street to get a cab, and all of a sudden I realize, well, we're in New York. That's the only yeah. place in the world. I'm really, now, I, 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 interesting, I really am affected by place. Places affect me really powerfully. I don't have a love. I, I grew up in Chicago. I don't have, I've, some of my, I've written stories set in Chicago. I've written stories set in New York. and I don't, I don't know if I have anything in L.A. I might, but. For some reason, I, I, I get, I'm one of those people, my wife always thinks I'm insane if we, we're driving around, and I'm fascinated by just different places, and I wonder what are the people's lives like here in this small town, or what, those sorts of, so place really affects me, and so, and this, uh, New York, I just thought, I think I actually started writing this after a trip to New Orleans, pre-Katrina, um, because New Orleans is such a haunted city, and I, I've always heard that, but when I actually went there in 2005, I was like, Oh wow! I get it. It, it. That you go to that. You will talk about process. You want to like go to a city that makes you want to sit down and write. Go to New Orleans, man. You just s suddenly it's, you feel ghosts all around you in some weird way. And in New York, in New York, can kind of have because it's such a big old city, kind of has some of that feeling as well. Yeah. You should try I Paris. Know. I'll bet. Yeah. Try Paris. Paris yeah. is seriously haunted. I'll bet. I've heard there were some writers living in Paris. Yeah, there's a few. There was a. It has a history of it, yeah. But, I, I, but back briefly to the process question. I do know the one little piece of advice I read from, I think it was James Joyce, that is actually really inspiring. He said, first drafts are shit. And the reason that's inspiring to me is because it, it sort of takes the onus off of trying to make the book a bestseller in the first draft. I don't know why that is freeing for me. But somehow, the idea that you could, it's almost the NaNoWriMo thing. It's this idea of just like, yeah. okay, I got to get this draft out. And it's going to be bad. And that's okay. Because you're going to rewrite and rewrite and rewrite and rewrite anyway. This is why I hate the process question. I'm sorry. I've never written a first draft. 
Oh. I write books. <laughs> and they're ready to go? To go. Wow. Now that's I have I have whip readers. Where do you get your ideas? I have whip readers. How does that work? <laughs> I have I have I have Michael. I have I have the, wow. most, the most the most valuable people on the planet, whip readers. Wow. Work that's in amazing. Prog- work in progress. Work in progress. When you're done and you give it to somebody to read their beta reading for you, when you give it to them chapter by chapter, I, I write rock and roll oh never forgets God. in real time. Well, wait a minute. If you give it, Literally. If you write I'm, it and I'm give it to them chapter too. by chapter and you don't revise it, what are they telling you? I'm, n- I'm not looking for corrections. I'm looking for dis- this flow. I'm looking for consonants and dissonance. Oh, that's so great. It's basically, I okay, look, you, 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 you've, written, you've written the first, I've written the first half of chapter six. Mm-hmm. I send it out to, and, and Rock and Roll Never Forgets had 51 whip readers. Mm, wow. 51 whip readers. I had input constant, and, and it was writing in real time. If I didn't send out 6,000 pages, a howl went up. So Where the hell is you? Giving you corrections? Wow. No, I wasn't asking for corrections. So what are they giving you? What I was, what I reactions. It was basically if you send something out to 10 people, and seven of them say, you know that whole thing on page 18, I I didn't follow that. You have a consonance. You have seven out of 10 of your readers. Go look at page page eighty because you go back and look, and see but what it is that they're not seeing. Corrected? It's not necessarily you're not necessarily not looking to it's correct. Like it's a, a reaction. It's a different yeah. thing. This is not editing. Right. But if they tell you if they if eighteen people or people tell you page eighteen is bad, seven people they're not saying right. it's bad. They're saying they can't they follow can't it follow. or they're wondering about it or they're getting oh. different impressions of it. Right. You, you need to look at it. Okay. I go and look at it absolutely. But you don't change it. I look at it to see if I think it needs changing. Mm. It right. doesn't always. Right, but if it does, if I agree with them, then yeah. Then it's not a fir- Then it's then you're revising it, right? I'll change the occasional word or sentence, yeah. pretty much. Right. Well, but it's it's yeah. not a. This is not a write a first draft and then rewrite, rewrite, rewrite. I don't All do right. that. Mm. Never have had to. Right. I don't work. It, it's a it's a it's a straight line. It's a, it's a it's a road. There's a light. You go there. The wow. end. I, I, I can't write any other way. Wow. It's one of the reasons that I find n- nonfiction writing is so much harder than fiction writing because with nonfiction writing, you have to be meticulous. This is fact. Mm-hmm. You want to be, you know, you want to get that right. And if I'm writing, if I'm writing about somebody, if I'm writing, if I'm doing a piece like Dear Richard, Please Will You Play, I sent that to Richard Thompson for his okay before I printed it. I sent Neil the piece before Peter, when I did the piece with Peter Beagle for, you know, mm-hmm. Peter got to see it first um, and approved it. Fiction, fiction writing is, I think, much easier. You know, I, well, I, I, I don't up. do drafts. <laughs> I, well, no, I mean in terms, of, in terms of how you, how I go with it and what I see What's at the yours? end of that line. Rita, it's yours exclusively. Yep. Boat anchors. Yep. Georgette Heyer did the same thing. Really? Yeah. Georgette Heyer did the same thing. She struggled with those mysteries. She rewrote them and rewrote them, but the, the historicals, out the door. And they are, they are still the gold standard for Regency. I just, I just, I, I, I know my characters, and, and everything I write is character-driven. If it's fiction, I'm starting with those people, and since I know them, and I'm getting to know them as I write them, I, I'm, it, I, my agent doesn't see it until I'm done with the book, which she gets as a book. 
She wow. doesn't get a draft. Oh, yes. Okay, a couple more questions. Rena, do you have a question um, or something? We should probably. I have one more question for, for Michael, if I may. Okay. I, I'm, I'm curious as to what um, your, your other, sort, the people associated with your other professional career as an actor think about your writing. Um, are they like, oh, <coughs> Thank you. Thank you. Oh, thank you. Um, well, Hollywood's not the most literarily <laughs> literary place, you know, and and it they don't, and it's interesting because they like to read, but only if they think they can make a movie out of it, and so it's almost. Uh, I think that my my. I think actors respond to it because actors are, by nature, storytellers. So my actor friends that know that I write books and things, they, they all think it's great and it's cool. Because, again, it's the creative urge. But in terms of any, you know, I, it's, that's sort of where it ends in a very strange way. I mean, every once in a while I'll say to some person who may be a producer friend or whatever, someone I know, yeah, I've got a novel. What's it about? What's it about? But it's not because they want to read the book. Yeah, it's because they want to figure out. So when you're when you're in a town where that is the entire consideration for the, I mean, every single thing goes back to that particular consideration. It's hard, you know, to sort of just be excited about a book. I mean, I, I was at a, I was at an audition the other day for something, and the casting director had read on a, a somewhere about me that I was coming here actually to do this. So you know, it got out, and. The, the guys who wrote this, it was an audition for a TV pilot, and so there are three writers in the room, three, you know, tele, television writers. You wrote a book? <laughs> wow. Uh, yeah, yeah. And this is from writers. These, are, these guys are writers. And I sort of, uh, I always sort of, sort of wait for that moment of click between myself as a, as a writer and then these guys as writers, and they sort of don't. Because they're doing, they're, Why? yeah. So it's a really, I mean, it's a good question, but I don't really know they don't, they don't need what the answer is. <laughs> yeah, well. they don't care, you know. Yeah, I, you know, I know. It's, so it's not like, oh, Michael No, no, because you know what? Because every, because Hollywood is a place where it's all so everybody's so terrified and desperate anyway. Yeah. Well, I remember I did. Yeah, I, I, you know what? I, I do think that I do think that. Right. I mean, I, I, I do think that. Weirdly enough, that people do respond to something that actually was done. So when someone says you, you know, it's like, oh, you, you. When I said earlier, you wrote a book. It's like what they really mean is you finished a book. <laughs> it's published. Wow. You know what I mean? Because you hear so much in L.A. about well, uh, I'm writing a screenplay, and it just never, nothing ever comes of it. So when something comes of it, it's why I'm always amazed when I meet people who actually got a film made. It's like yeah. you. Wow, that's great. You've finished something. So, you know. You, you can make a good living as a writer in L.A. and never see anything on screen. Never get oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, God knows I know people that do it. And I knew, I knew a guy. Somebody told me one time I'd written about three or four screenplays. And he mm -hmm. said, man, you're crazy. He said, they don't, nobody reads screenplays. They read reports on screenplays. On screenplays, you know? yeah. <laughs> they read what their assistant the said. Screenplay is when it's, or oh, the deal is done and you're ready. Yeah. Oh, boy. But I think that, I mean, fortunately, uh, because, I, I, as I said earlier, I was always such a voracious reader, I, I, I'm just 
so happy that I was because I went into a pl- I lived in L.A. for 10 years, and I live in New York now, but I still work there. And I went there with this love of books, and that's why I write. I, you know, I see it clearly now. I, I don't write because I hope this is going to be made into a movie one day. You know what, if, if that happens, yeah, it would be fantastic. But when I sat down to write this, I didn't think, wouldn't this make a great movie? It's like I love stories and I love books, and so – you know, it's really weird to try to connect the two. And I bet Deborah can connect with this too. I, the, even if you've been writing for twenty years or whatever, there's there's still so, there's still a thrill to me of seeing my name on an article or a book. Yeah. Uh, oh just yeah. Just like when I was in, when I'd written in high school. Yeah. You know, and I've done it, you know, lots of times. But it's yeah. still, it's it's an archaic thrill probably, but I feel it. Well, it's still a thrill. I mean, when this, I've only well, I've been writing for. 14 years or something and when this when the, when the author's copy came to the house I still there is a very is, wow what's yeah, what's my name and a friend said but you know you've been on TV and movies what do you I go no this is different because this is from you as compared to you being a part of someone else's story that's the other thing well it's your vision right it's your vision yeah. you know it's, it's, it's and this is one you can give your mother well, <laughs> yeah. Or at least the cover. At least the cover. Good. The cover's pretty. Yeah. yeah. The cover is really nice. Exactly. The title she won't she won't have a problem with. <laughs> Thanks for coming, guys. Uh, who we got? Thank you, guys. Next month, we don't even know, do we? No, you'll have to tune in to our website. Ooh, that's suspense. Yeah. Now everybody doesn't. Yeah. People don't have to go home. These guys have got to sign books and uh, yeah, we've got to out and um, all that kind of stuff. Thank you, guys. Thank you very much. That was fun. You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.